Hello, I'm Dr. Oren Smith, Senior Fellow at Palmetto Promise Institute in South Carolina, and this is the Beyond Policy Podcast. We hope you'll subscribe to the pod and listen regularly as we think deeply about which policies have the potential to put the well-being of South Carolinians first. Thanks for tuning in to Beyond Policy, and now, on to the show. Well, welcome to another edition of Beyond Policy. This is where real people talk about real lives and events and how that has an impact on policy. The goal is to get beyond just the policy and talk about real people and real lives and how change sometimes at the state level and the policy level affects people in our community. So we are thrilled today to have uh, Dr. Seanette Parker with us. Seanette, so great to see you. It's great to see you too, Oren. I'm happy to be here. Um, you know, I can't help but thinking b- before I kind of introduce you here um, that this was sort of my dream for you, as you may recall, <laughs> that, 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 that there be the Dr. Sean at Parker show. Um, I've always I've always thought that you could easily have your own uh, your own talk show uh, just because of, of the way that we have interacted over the years and just enjoy uh, talking to you and the whole spirit that you exude. Um, but just a few little biographical details. Uh, Dr. Uh, Seanette Parker uh, is a, a native of Indiana, and I, I sort of forgot about that. Yeah. Um, and she uh, now resides in uh, Aiken, and she's done a lot of things besides being a mother of six. She's uh, written a, a children's book. She's very active in her church and her school that's affiliated with her church, which we'll be getting into that uh, shortly. And then as far as her uh, academic credentials, she has a Bachelor of Arts in Telecommunications. Aha, I remember that now. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, I think you, you did a lot with telecommunications while you were mm-hmm. a student at, at uh, IU. Mm-hmm. And a Master of Science in commu- uh, Community Psychology from uh, Martin, and then a Doctor of Philosophy in Education psychology from uh, Walden. So she's uh, uh, can't figure out how you've had any spare time whatsoever in your entire life. Yeah. Yeah. I try not to think about it because then it gets overwhelming. So I have to just go with the flow. Right. It just, just makes you tired. Let's, let's start from the the very beginning of your life. Uh, just tell us a little bit. And, and once we get into some of the, the, uh, the various interesting positions you've had as far as as employment, we can go through those a little slower. But uh, start us off at the very beginning, growing up in Indiana. And yeah. What was what was that like? Is it sort of like the South Carolina of the Midwest? You know, I, I'm starting to learn that. It was funny because my husband and I, we were just like watching a TV show and we were talking about like regional foods and what it means to be like from the Midwest. And I started talking about it and realizing that I actually had a lot of Southern influence. Um, you yeah. know, I guess what they call like the great migration, you know, um, my family's from Indonola, Mississippi and made its way up to uh, Chicago. And then like we ended up in South Bend, Indiana, um, where it is. And just realizing, I was like, but I think a lot of who I am is still Southern at heart. Um, as we were oh, kind wow. of talking yeah. about it, you know, and just kind of like what the different things that we did growing up and traditions and all those different things. And I said, huh, I guess I was born and raised in the Midwest and I have that culture. But then realizing once I moved to South Carolina, how Southern I actually am and how connected I've become to just kind of Southern culture in the way. And I'm a big talker and it fits well with the South because everybody talks to each other. Right. right. That's so, right. 
Yes. But, but yeah, I mean, Indiana was great. Um, I, it was, I was the typical person who grew up in a smaller town, South Bend, Indiana, where you always said, I can't wait to get out of here. I can't wait to leave. And I, and I always told myself I'd never end up in another small town. And lo and behold, I'm in Aiken, South Carolina, which is <laughs> yeah. much, which is much smaller than South Bend. But yes. you know, it's great. I had a great upbringing, bringing great childhood. I mean, love that the education schools wouldn't change it. Um, um, but it was that education and those experiences and the programs that I was involved in that kind of really led to the work that I decided to get into professionally. Right. Yeah. yeah so yeah. big family, small family. Um, I, I would say, you know, it's interesting when I say family, I'm thinking of the entire family, not just immediate extended. family, extended family. So I always said I have a big family, but I guess I have a small immediate family. It was just my mom and my brother growing up. Um, but tons of aunts, uncles, cousins, we grew up together, spent so much time together that, you know, they really were like sisters and brothers to me. So I would say I have a huge, big extended family. We were always together. Family was super, super important for us. Yes. Yeah. Yes. That, that just sounds like an idyllic childhood. Yeah, I, it was. I, I went to South Bend once. It was sort of an unusual thing. There was a, there was some kind of a uh, broadcasting network that was headquartered in South Bend. Mm-hmm. And, um, it, it was for a broadcast where I was being interviewed on okay. this on this show, and I guess this is these are the days before where you were able to do the kind of what we're doing now, where you had to actually go there. Yeah. So I went there, and for some reason, I had this idea of South Bend like it was sort of like a, um, you know, like an Ivy League sort of town that it was gonna. I expected to be like. Cambridge, Massachusetts or, or something, but it, it really was, it was a very diverse town with a lot of the, you know, diverse culture that, that, that made it a much more interesting place than I really expected. Yeah, as much as, you know, we're huge Notre Dame fans, of course, in that area, everybody is, but it was still always kind of auxiliary um, to just life growing up in South Bend. Now, I spent my summers on campus at Notre Dame. I was a part of the Upward Bound program, one of the trio programs, so six weeks in the summer. And so I was very connected, but it was interesting. It wasn't your typical college town that you would expect. I mean, even Notre Dame was on the map. They say Notre Dame, Indiana. They don't call it South Bend, Indiana. So growing up, there was still a big divide, even though we were huge fans, it wasn't like how when I went to school in Bloomington, Indiana with IU, how everything was, you know, encapsulated around Indiana University and it was just a huge college town. Not the same vibe in South Bend. Yeah. Other than when there's a football game, everything shuts down for football games. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yes. I, I have a brother-in-law. There's really no reason he should be an obsessive Notre Dame fan. He grew up in Greenville, South Carolina, but he's always been obsessed with Notre Dame and love loves the Irish. And uh, poor guy, you know, when when the when Notre Dame played Clemson uh, in Death Valley back in the day, uh, he was so excited. He went to the game as you I don't know if you even remember that was very competitive game. And and it was pouring rain, just a deluge of rain. Uh, Clemson wins it right at the end. uh, And then uh, (laughs) he was trapped in the parking lot at Clemson for like three hours so he had to s- sit there and and think through all the things that could have gone differently in the game. So just just totally miserable. And you know, I sort of I sort of felt for him 
because uh, a Notre Dame fan is is hardcore. They're they're no sort sort of fans. I don't think. Definitely, definitely. Yes. I grew up yes. knowing the Notre Dame fight song before I even knew my own school's alma mater. So yes. yeah, that's how it yes. is. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Well, do, anything about your youth? And I'm going to cheat a little bit as we're looking into yeah. the future with this kind of a foreshadowing. Um, is there anything about your youth that you think might have sowed the seeds for? the passion you have about the transformative power of education in somebody's life. Anything early on? Yeah, I think that's really kind of where it started for me. I mean, I, I number one, I latched on to academics because that I figured out that was my talent and that was my superpower. Um, you had every, everybody else who could dance, they could sing, they were great cheerleaders. And I was a cheerleader, but I just wasn't always the best. I tried to play sports and basketball and all that. And I, you know, wasn't very good. But when I realized that I was kind of smart and that it got me different places, I really held on to that and focused on it. But I was also always very, um, I don't know if the word's triggered or I felt some type of way about the, this, the kids who didn't have the same opportunities as me. Like I was on that path. I was in special programs. I did so much academically. And I remember particularly like once we got into high school and talking to friends about their process in terms of applying to colleges and things like that. And they didn't have the same experience because I was in that special program, the upward bound where they made sure we were going on college visits. And we were, I mean, early on, even as early as like middle school and seeing things, but if you weren't in that program, you didn't have the same access. And so many kids who weren't in those programs, I look back now and they're, many are successful, but many aren't. Many just, you know, they, they didn't really get a chance to launch and get different opportunities. And I realized it's opportunity that divides people, right? I'm the same as some of who we might consider unsuccessful. The only difference between me and those people are, I just had different people in my life and different opportunities. And so it really just started to press upon me how important it is to have um, resources and connections to the right people and things like that. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So yes, you were very blessed to be having someone there to kind of point you in the right direction. People that done that kind of thing before. And absolutely. Um, so did, did you uh, have a lot of different options in your mind as far as was it was it was it an easy choice to to go with uh, Indiana or or did you have other universities you were thinking about I had other universities I was thinking about. I thought I was going to head down south. I had applied to like Clark Atlanta and to Spelman. Um, I was considering Georgia Tech, a whole bunch of different places. But Indiana University, number one, it was the scholarship money. So another one of the trio programs was the student support services. But at IU, they have group student support services. So it's a different kind of partnership than some of the other student support services programs at universities to where they made sure your entire freshman year was paid for. If you didn't, if you had unmet need from financial aid, and then you had scholarship opportunity for the next four years. So I had to go where the money went. But also my mother had went to IU. So it was one of those things. And then just, you know, friends and different people. Yeah, who were going legacy. There. So it was, 
Yeah, it was a legacy, but it was one of the best decisions. It came with its challenges. Um, if anybody knows anything about just Bloomington, Indiana, and the, you know some of the issues there, but I wouldn't change it for the world. So I was super excited to be able to go. But it really was about the opportunity and money. And again, that connection with the TRIO programs, having been a part of like Talent Search and Upward Bound, and then to go into the student support services, it was, it was really a no-brainer at that point. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think we may have talked about this before. I'm not sure, but did when you were at Indiana and studied uh, communications, uh, were or telecommunications? Did you already mm-hmm. do some some TV work? Did you do some I TV work? Or? Did I did? Yeah, so yeah, you know, yeah. and 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 all's my loss. One day I might have my own podcast show. You know, when I first started. Yes. Yeah, and, and and when I was in high school, actually, um, and if anybody ever pulls out those old videos, I'll probably laugh at myself, but it was a TV show called Teens on the Move. Um, and I remember, yes, I was in high school and I interviewed our mayor and we did stuff and we were taught, it was so funny. And I don't realize how invested I was in like education issues and stuff even then, but that was a lot of what we would talk about and just stuff that was affecting teens. And so I went into undergrad with that same mindset, thinking that I was going to go into television. And I did, I started working for the PBS channel when I was a student there and doing just different programming. And I was able to then intern, um, at an NBC affiliate. And my first full-time job was actually with WTHR in Indianapolis. So I thought I was going to go full television route. Um, but things started to happen. And I, I also am very much a helping person. So that's where the pivot kind of happened. But yeah, um, I, but I would say even my first work in television and production had a lot to do with education, children, um, something dealing with teaching, that kind of thing. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. Well, let me maybe jump jump ahead a little bit to where uh, when you started working, and this is where I, I think I first we first in, encountered each other when you were working for the public charter school district of South Carolina. We, we've talked about charters a good bit on this this uh, podcast, and we of course talk about charters a lot at Palmetto Promise. Uh, but but even this week, even this week, well, here was how this this unfolded. Someone said, well, I would like to participate in the ESA program, which finally passed the legislature. Can you believe it? Uh, Oh, my goodness. You're looking, folks, you are looking not toward me the other way. You're looking at the person that probably had more to do with getting it passed than any human being in South Carolina. So thank you for all you did on that. But first of all, I learned about you with when you were working with the charters. And somebody asked me this week, they said, okay, this ESA program, it's going to start not this fall, but the following fall. Now, there's a, there's some language in the law that passed that says you have to have attended uh, a public school uh, in, in the previous year to when you apply uh, for the charter, uh, for the, for the, uh, ESA. So the question was now, I guess my son won't be eligible because he's currently going to a charter school. Like, oh dear, this is, here we are. We're back at, we're back at this again. And of course, for those of us who, who know about this and hear about it every day and talk about it all the time, we know that charter schools are public schools. They're just governed differently. So mm-hmm. yes, your child would be eligible for the ESA program because your child would have been in a public school. So 
Tell, tell us about life at the Charter Alliance. Uh, did you yeah. face those kind of questions, answering a lot of the same questions over and over and over? A lot of the same questions. They never changes. So when I was at the Public Charter School Alliance of South Carolina, a uh, great time. It was a great way for me to get connected um, to the work in education here um, in, in South Carolina. You know, when I left Indianapolis, I was with the Big Picture Learning Company, um, and I was work- one of their charter schools. When they had first opened, I was their current college counselor there. So I wasn't new to the charter world um, when I came here. And so it was it was a bit of a fluke. You know, I was actually working with a team of folks at, from my church who was trying to get a new charter school open. They actually ended up opening Tall Pines um, here in Aiken County. Um, but at that time, it was through a different like kind of planning group. And I was on their, their team and we were at the hearing and I was just, you know, talking about the education model and what we were proposing to do. And the then um, executive director, Mary Carmichael, um, with the Charter School Alliance was there. Yeah. And we were talking and she just felt like I had- Hello, Mary, if you're out there. Absolutely. She's at um, Charleston Charter for Math and Science now. Um, And we just started having a conversation. She thought I'd be great to be able to come on a team. And I was just really excited to kind of get involved in the education scene here in South Carolina, particularly because I had young children who were still school age. And so it was just a perfect way. So great work being able to help develop charter schools, um, helping people with their education model. I was specifically their director of mission and strategic coaching. So I really like to look at things that organization side and the strategy behind it and making sure that we're really doing what we need to do to help and support children. So it was just great work. And I still have really great relationships in the charter world um, in the work that I'm still doing and being able to connect. But that was one of the biggest things, getting people to understand that charter schools are public schools. Um, and yes. you know what I mean? And, and, and yeah. it, it's just, there's so much confusion out there about the different education choices. And no matter how much we talk about this, you still have people saying the wrong thing. So that's why we just have to keep doing the work we're doing. That's why I'm glad you're doing the podcast. And the more and more we can talk about it to try to clarify things, the better understanding that we'll get. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, I think one of the things that we had in common when we were working together more more closely on a regular basis was um, we were both sort of all of the above. Uh, like like for instance, I was um, I was testifying up at the state senate this past legislative session, and I was speaking on behalf of the ESA bill, but also of some version of the tax credit scholarship bill because you mm-hmm. know the ESA bill crossed over from the from the from the Senate to the House and made it to the governor's desk. But there's also this tax credit scholarship bill that would expand the tax credit scholarship that we currently have into something much more robust. And I was sort of speaking in favor of that. And I felt that one of the senators uh, whom I admire, admire very greatly was sort of leading me into what I felt was sort of a public education versus anti-public education sort of a conversation. And that wasn't something that I was up for because parents need every option they possibly can. So when we started talking about education at Palmetto Promise, we said, well, there's there's public, there's public charter, there are magnet schools, so many magnet schools in South Carolina. Charleston has have, will have one on every corner nearly. And then you have private, you have um, private parochial or or Christian or Jewish or 
are Islamic, you have um, just purely private that have no religious connection whatsoever. Then you've got homeschooling. And I remember, Seanette, you you, uh, asked me to write a blog post for my SC education on on homeschooling. And I'm surprised that you actually were willing to publish what I wrote, because what I attempted to do was to even dice up homeschoolers and homeschooling families into different categories because you have sort of the, you have sort of the crunchy homeschoolers who are uh, probably a little slightly left of center or very libertarian. Then you've got what might be considered like the Duggar type homeschoolers that people associate with the Duggar family. Mm -hmm. So there was a lot of, a lot of variation in there, but, but when we were working together, we were always about everything, make sure that parents know every possible option they possibly have both public and private. I still refer to that blog post though, because you did such a great job. I mean, I think (laughs) to me, when when you work it down, people have to go to the websites to to look it up and we can share that. But you know, it really did break out to about 25 different options when you really look at the uniqueness of Yeah, in in South Carolina, I wish people would understand that. And, And just, but the takeaway from that is, it's just about making sure you find the right fit for your child and that you can't just send them anywhere, right? And we really need to think about all these different options, but there are these all these nuances between what they are. But that biggest one that you mentioned is people not understanding that charters, because I wish we could drop the, the label public charter because I think it implies that there's private charters, but when we don't say public charter, people still think that they're private and it's like so hard to break that. I know that in some states they have these partnerships. Even SBC Prep, where I'm board chair, we used to share a building with the charter school. And so I think people would get confused. Okay, I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah, when it first started, you had the private school downstairs because they were small. But then Lloyd Kennedy um, Charter School, they're, they're no longer in existence in Aiken County. They started upstairs. And so I think that just sometimes you do have those partnerships between the, the charter schools and the um, private schools, or even some charter schools might use churches for their location until they get going. And maybe that's what confuses people. But then we just think it's you have some really strong voices who are opponents who will say one thing. And unfortunately, we live in a time and space to where you don't have to be right. If you can just say something in a convincing way, people <laughs> run with it. So it's like, I'm constantly trying to say, well, no, a charter school is a public school. They get funded very much the same way that your traditional public schools get funded. But it's like people, it's so hard to compete with what people are convinced that they know. Yeah. But, you know, we'll keep on, we'll keep on doing the work. Yeah. Can I ask you a question though about the, the, the tax credit? You might want to get into it a little bit more, but between the, the tax credit that's Past versus the um, ESA or the Education Scholarship Trust Fund. What what's the major differences between that? What families would apply for one over the other? Like, how would they know what they should be working for? Well, as you know, that's sort of a moving a moving target for a while there. Mm-hmm. You remember when you were testifying, and I'm going to get to a little clip that I found of you testifying. <laughs> but when we get to when we talk about ESAs and and how that bill was going to look. There was some interest in making the ESA for uh, children with special needs. 
There were others that that wanted the ESA to be directed at children with a different kind of special need, and that was poverty, low and moderate income. So at one point, as the bill was coming through the General Assembly, it looked like it might have an element of each, and then it looked like it was going to be a special needs bill, because most of the ESA bills, as they passed beginning in about 2011, they were, they were for special needs children. But the way it shook out in South Carolina in the final version was it was pretty much based on, on poverty, 200%, 300%, and then 400% of poverty. So the definition of, uh, of eligible when it comes to income ramps up over three years. But in the end, it was about poverty. Now, the, the uh, tax credit bill, which is the one that passed the Senate and is residing in the House currently, it had several different categories, uh, one for homeschoolers, uh, one for special needs, one for more economically uh, challenged uh, families, and it had different pots of money for each one, which totaled up to a pretty sizable chunk. So the ESA bill is more economically focused. The tax credit bill has lots of different foci, uh, depending on uh, how you how you fit into those categories of eligibility. Yeah. Okay. Okay. That's right. good to know. Right. I've had, right. I've had parents still asking me and people are getting excited, you know, of course. They're like, how can I apply? I was like, we'll make sure between myself and Palmetto Promise that you all have all the information. But that's like one of the big things. People are like, when can I apply for this? So yes. there's definitely yes. a need. I'm so happy that we have this movement. And as you said, we've been working on it for so long. Since I, when I first moved to South Carolina, jumped into this fight. And I'm so happy that now we can finally say there's something. Um, and not a magic book. It, right, but there's something for us to start and to be able to make some differences in the space. So that's exciting. Yes. Well, at this point, I would like to have you uh, go back here with me, and we can listen together to your uh, testimony that you offered before the General Assembly about uh, two years ago, three years ago, on, on the ESA bill. So it's for our listeners. It's only about a minute and a half. So we'll go to that at this point, and we can listen to that together. What are we saying to the aspiring engineer who is not allowed to participate in the award-winning robotics program offered in her in a school that's in her city all because she's not located in the right school zone? What are we saying to the parent who has been struggling with the IEP program in her son's school for the past four years because the school isn't equipped with the right personnel to support the son's special needs? So far, parents have been told to make do with what you, what you have and hope for the best. What parents need to hear is that lawmakers understand that their child's education is a demand for respect, it is a demand for opportunities, a demand for economic gains, and most of all, education is a demand for freedom. Parents need to hear that they live in a state that will do all it can to make it possible for children to access high quality, competitive, and effective education. An ESA bill represents an opportunity for South Carolina to let parents know our children are not disposable and they deserve the best possible preparation to ensure they will be productive, contributing members of society. Well, Seanette, that was, you said you were nervous that day. I, I thought you sounded pretty confident. 
Well, thank you for saying that. I was so nervous. You know, I am a person of presentation, you know, so one of the big part, I was a theater and drama minor in on top of telecommunications and undergrad. So speech and presentation is huge. And I just felt like that day, like I was stumbling over my words, but I was so passionate about it and I get so energized whenever it's always my turn to get ready to go up there. And I'm like, I'm ready. But then it's just like the nerves come over me and everything. But everyone says how passionate I seem that I was getting the job done. So I'm just happy I'm able to contribute. But everything I said, I was like, I mean that. Like, we just have to really do what's best for the children first and really just to try to get outside of ourselves, outside of the egos that we might have. I know money is a big thing, but sometimes if we first just even step outside of the idea of money and think about what's best for kids, we can get somewhere with that. So that's really what I was trying to convey, but I was super nervous. It's always nervous being in front of the big wigs. Yes. In front of the big wigs. And, uh, and, and uh, the thing I would have, if I thought about it, we talked beforehand, what I would have whispered in your ear that day is, Seanette, you realize you know more about this bill and what it would do than all of those guys sitting up there combined. Um, but one thing about that, as we just heard it back, um, was how you were not uh, playing. You were not fooling around. Mm -hmm. I mean, you were, I thought, in a very appropriate way, you were demanding more choices on yeah. behalf of children in South Carolina. And you were, you were pleasant, you were smiling, but you were really, I think, taking, taking everybody on and making, kind of making folks, um, making them um, defend themselves as to why there isn't more, aren't, aren't more opportunities. And those examples that you used of the, of the, of the young uh, child, the young girl that had certain capabilities that, would would be lost because she just didn't have the have the ability to apply, say, to maybe a, a school for which she was not zoned. Her zip code was going to determine her destiny clearly. So um, yeah, I thought that was that was really pugnacious in a in a wonderful way. Well, thank you. And you know, one thing I came to learn after doing this um, a few times and really kind of getting over the nerves a bit, I'm still nervous when I speak, but just realizing how important it is just to tell your story and how important it is to speak your truth. And that's one thing that I started to try to convey to other parents. Because when I first came into this space, I was like, eh, what is my one little story or what I have to say? What difference is that going to make? Is anybody really listening? And then I came to realize, no, it's this combination of all these types of stories and this real truth and understanding of this is not me just making it up and how can you argue against someone's actual story and so I whenever I would testify making sure everything that I talked about these are real people this is not me just making it up and saying oh I'm just coming up with these fake scenarios no I've spoken to so many parents who if they just had a little bit of opportunity or a little bit of resources and somewhere else to send their child they'd be better off I I mean, I started going in and um, to IEP meetings with parents who were calling me saying, you know, they're not following this law correctly. They're about to expel my child, you know, and the school doesn't know what they're doing. And I was able to stop a few expulsions even um, oh, because wow. they weren't. No yeah, idea. Absolutely. That was one of the most exciting things able to do. Um, because they just weren't following the law properly, you know? And so that's one of the things that I would always kind of push back on people say, Oh, you know, and this is no way in me saying there's something wrong with public schools. I always, you always have to defend that, but 
just because the school has a program. So they say, oh, we have IEP, we have a special ed department. That doesn't necessarily mean they can serve all those children well. Right. And so you have sometimes like it works for a group of them, but sometimes it's it's just not what they need. And so I was able to kind of go in and see where they either sometimes the personnel don't understand the rules and the laws and kind of poke it out. And I would have it printed out saying, no, I'm looking at the yes, policy right yeah. here. IDEA and you can't is, do it. Yeah, yeah, it's a lot. It's confusing. Um, so yeah, I just would come into testifying with that kind of fuel with, I would spend time talking to parents and families and those were the real stories. And I mean it, I, I am, I'm at a point that we have to do something drastically different. Um, and you know, you're not going to please everybody with everything, but if we keep on doing the same thing over and over and we're not getting good results, we got to stop, right? Isn't that what they yeah. say is the definition insanity. of insanity, right? And yeah. so I'm like, yeah. let's stop going insane here in South Carolina. So yeah. yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. Well, the, 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 the session that you had um, in front of the House, uh, one of the subcommittees of the House Ways and Means, a year before you delivered that testimony, I wish I had a recording of that. And I think you know where I'm headed. And that's where a member of the South Carolina General Assembly looked at you and said, I don't think parents, I mean, you have to correct me here. I don't think parents are able to make choices for their children and their education. He said, I don't think parents are smart enough to make oh, education. I started he to said, go there and I yeah, wasn't sure if no, I remembered it right. He, he said, because I will, oh, I'll never forget. He said, I don't think they're smart enough to make these decisions. And he truly wanted a test to be instituted that says whether or not parents should be able to make those decisions. He said, all parents should have to take a test to determine whether or not they're smart enough to make decisions for their children to be able to change. And I was oh, boy. It was yeah, I, I think oh, that yes. moments that really got me on fire to connect with more parents and say, do you know what elected officials are saying about you? And this is why you have to be a part of this fight. This is why your voice matters and that you have to speak up because we have to speak against that kind of nonsense. It's just, it was ridiculous. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Wow. I'm, I'm, you know, you, you, uh, you remembered it accurately and worse than I even remembered because I yes. remember there's something like about capability and exactly. no, it actually said you're not smart enough. That's oh my said. goodness. Yes. Yes. Wow. Wow. Well, okay. I'm going through all my Seanette's greatest hits here. The other greatest hit was when you and I were invited you and I were supposed to represent uh, school choice, private, pretty much private school choice. And then two others were going to represent opposition to school choice. And there was yeah. going to be two versus two. So we show up at the radio station and you and I go into a conference room and there are two other people who were going to be on the other side. And then the little red light comes on and we go on the air and all of a sudden there's somebody on the phone there's somebody else in the studio, the host. Let's see, one, two, three, four. It was at least six against two when the big red light come on, came on and we were live. Wasn't that wild? It was wild, but guess who had the last laugh? We do, right? And I think the whole time that I was there, because I, I, I don't know that I expected it to be that fully swayed the other way when we were on the show and that everybody would be against, you know, having this ESA. And it's just so frustrating because I think 
all I kept hearing was the sound bites that you would have from opposition who doesn't know what this is all about and what an ESA or what tax credits and different things are about. And they're just going off of what they hear in the general media that they just say, oh, it's we're taking money from the public schools to give to private schools. And that's not really exactly what it is, right? But that's how people try to right, boil it right. down into that. Um, and, and so... You know, I, I wasn't surprised once we really got into it at the same time. Yeah. Right. Well, and one of the calls that that everyone, <laughs> everyone but us, sort of took as gospel was, well, school choice, if you look at it, it's really just to help wealthy people uh, uh, write off the schooling mm-hmm. that they're already providing their child. Well, yeah. hmm, let's see. The first year of the program, it's 200% of federal poverty. So we're talking about a, a family of four at in the range of, you know, sixty thousand um, dollars. You know, a, a private uh, and and a child that attends private school right now would not be eligible next year. So there are a lot of facts that that we were just desperate to get out because we we were facing this fire hose of of just bad facts, wrong yeah. facts. Yeah, one of the biggest things that I was so frustrated because, you know, with radio, you don't have enough time. But, you know, people kept coming back to the idea that private schools can be selective on who they bring in and how come it wasn't written in the law that they had to kind of change that. But I wanted to point out that we have some private schools that have been designed for certain needs, like a school for dyslexic children or a school for students with severe disabilities and things. And it wouldn't be fair to that school to say, if your school specifically for dyslexic children, that a parent who just wants their kid to go there who isn't dyslexic, that just doesn't make sense. So that's the reason why it's written in the law that way, not because we're trying to enable private schools to be uber selective and keep certain people out because a good majority of the private schools are Christian schools. And most of the schools with this Christian perspective are saying we want to serve everybody, right? But we had to keep that in the law that way so that a school that does want to meet a special population can. I mean, what about a school that's created just for boys or just for girls? We can't yes. say that they should have yes. to be, you know, because that just kind of changes right. the whole design. But yeah. I think people yeah. were missing that. They were thinking that the idea that private schools can be selective is about being malicious, is about being able to keep the cream of the crop and all that, when it really isn't about that. It's about making sure that we also have room for schools that are specialized. Specialized, right, right. Yeah, yeah. And that was the point I wanted to get out, but we couldn't. Yes, yes. And and now we go to a commercial. Yeah. Uh, Every time we got ready to make our point, we would have our finger up in the air and then we go to commercial. But, you know, Following along that line, also a, a, a myth about private schools in South Carolina is that the tuition is astronomical. We heard that over and over and over during the process of, uh, I don't think a lot of people realize how many little private schools there are, particularly the ones run by churches that are delivering a quality product. And in many cases where the teachers and the administrators are just making nothing and there's pouring them and the Catholic schools where the, the nuns and people that have kind of (laughs) sworn an oath to poverty are running these schools and the tuition, sometimes even the tuition is sort of a suggestion 
because the church is going to jump in. Well, tell us about Second Baptist Prep. Oh, by the way, what a fantastic new camp. I was driving through Aiken the other day, and I looked off to the right, and I saw Second Baptist. I thought, Second Baptist? Second Baptist is downtown. And all of a sudden, I look, and it's like a former Lowe's or Home Depot. It was a former Second Baptist. Yeah. Former Baptist. All Second Baptist. Right. Well, first, let me just say, because that was one thing I when I first started working with my um, education. So when I came from Public Charter School Alliance and went to my education, we wanted to look more at the different education options. I spent a lot of time researching a lot of the private schools that we have in South Carolina for that purpose to find out like how much are people charging. And you're right. The majority of the private schools throughout the state have tuitions below two thousand dollars. I mean, ten thousand dollars a year below ten thousand. Now, are there yeah. some that are higher? There are, but these are probably also the schools that we're not necessarily talking about for the education scholarship accounts and things. Um, the vast majority are much lower. So SBC Prep, Second Baptist Christian Preparatory School, um, founded about, I guess we always get the dates, uh, 26 years ago, 26 plus years ago, in the basement of the old SBC church, right? The Second Baptist church, um, when we were at our old campus. So you're talking, we were able to grow. The church has bought, it was an old buy but the whole property where there was like a bylo and a, a um, Dollar General and a restaurant. So that's all our church. If you come to the campus, you would not even know that it used to be a grocery store. Um, and then the school is still oh, no. actually I, operating. I could, that's yeah, why I struggled. Home Depot. Yeah. Or what was it? Yeah. yeah. You wouldn't even know. And the school is still at our, our original location, but we have that whole campus now. But it started in the basement of the church, eight students. It was a summer program and parents were like, we love it. We need it to stay. Can you turn this into a school? And so that's really just kind of how it evolved. That's um, and, and yeah, and our tuition is only $4,750. We actually had to okay, do a slight a tuition Breaking increase. news. Breaking news. Can you repeat that figure for the world to hear? Tuition for the entire school year, $4,750. That is it for the entire year. Um, and we have been wow. educating young people wow. for years. We have students who, who now graduate from high school who are doctors and lawyers and doing great work. Um, and that's one thing. And, and our tuition is one of the lowest in South Carolina, but there's many private schools that have that annual tuition low. So when people say, oh, well, the, the you know, education scholarship trust fund is not going to cover that. Well, yeah, because if you get $6,000 per child, you're covered for the whole year. Right. So, yeah. 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 Well, I remember uh, when we were kind of thinking over what the number was going to be in the bill. And I kind of look over at Michael Aquilano, who works with the Catholic schools. And uh, I said, Michael, it's looking like it's going to hover around $6,000 a kid. And I expected him to kind of grab his heart and say, we just can't do that. And he said, Oh, well that we can, you know, we can make that happen because of donations and, and other things that was, that was workable. And, you know, actually uh, an organization called Ed choice, which is out of Indiana, Indianapolis, Indiana. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Ed choice did a survey of private education for us once a few years ago, a little, little dated at this point, but not terribly. And uh, the numbers that they were showing were way under 10,000 a year per kid. Now it was different. Sometimes that it got more expensive, like elementary would be really cheap. And then middle will be a little more and high school, a little more. I don't know if 
you know, all the schools step step up like that, depending on the the level, the grade level. But but Second Baptist Prep, um, and it was that uh, Pastor Slaughter's yes. vision. Yes. Yeah. Yes. So Reverend Slaughter, Reverend Doug Slaughter, um, he it was his vision. He started. He came from New York. He had run some schools in New York, and he had brought that to us. And it's just been a staple in our community, and we're working to grow. And we know that the. Uh, the education scholarship account funds that will help us grow. But I also want people to understand it's not because we're trying to, the money's not going to the school. It's going to the families, yes. but then that would allow more families to come to our school so that we can grow. I mean, we truly work paycheck to paycheck. When I say that, like we depend on the tuition of the parents, but we put every cent of that back into the school and to the students. And so they can see it. And so it's just amazing to me if we can educate children for $4,750 a year, but the public schools down the street are getting upwards 15, 20,000 per pupil. And they still say that they can and they're having all these issues and they're failing. I, I think that's why it kind of comes across as if we're like pitting them against each other. And it's not the case, but it raises a, a, an eyebrow, right? You have to question, well, what is happening in our traditional schools that you know, and they're not as successful in the test grades and all those things are a little bit lower. And if they're getting so much more money, I think I want parents start asking those questions. Well, where is the money going? How is the money being spent? Because we get those questions a lot in our school and it gets a little frustrating because we're like, well, do you ask the traditional public schools that? I promise you the money's going to your children. But I don't know right. if we can always right. see that money flow in the traditional right. schools and yes. things like that. Yes. So, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Well, this is probably a good place to put in two little plugs for, for Palmetto Promise. And first is because of the ESA bill passing and uh, engendering so many questions because parents are finding out about it. Mm -hmm. we, just, we just put up a very simple uh, analysis with bullet points from the legislation so that parents can get an idea of what's what was in the bill. Uh, the State Department of Education, of course, is going to be administering it along with the Education Oversight Committee. So we'll be seeing more officially from the department. But this is just something to let parents know generally what was in the bill, kind of in common, everyday language. And the second thing is, um, nearly two years ago now, we put up a resource on the Palmetto Promise website that showed how much each school district was receiving in revenue and what they were spending and what the, the test scores were. And at the time that resource was put on the Palmetto Promise website, it was the only resource in the state that brought together academic information with revenue and spending information. Those had always been separate. You could, you could find on the state government website, you could find out what each district was receiving, state, federal, and local, and then the total. And then you could see the test scores at a separate place, but they had never been in one place. So that's another resource. And for people who look at that, they will find that it uh, it has the figures uh, need to be updated. And that's part of our plan to do that. But it, at least it gives you an idea of, of what we're looking at by school district for not only academic performance, but um, and, and Second Baptist and, and independent private schools in South Carolina tend to be pretty upfront with their academic results. Uh, I was just looking at a website uh, a couple of weeks ago, just trying to think, well, I'll tell you what I was doing. Be to totally transparent here. We were having the bill signing for the ESA bill, and I was trying to think of some um, 
school leaders that might want to come. And I thought, well, it would be more likely for someone to come who lived near the state house. So I'm thinking about schools near the state house. And I started looking at some of these websites for schools in proximity to the to the state house. And they seem to be very upfront about their test scores and how they compared on national normal reference uh, tests. Absolutely. And I think that's what people don't understand, uh, um, you know, about private schools. They're we, they put the information out. They're testing their students. I know that was like always the, the feedback. Well, you know, how can we be so sure? And we're not holding the private schools accountable and things like that. They are, they want to be transparent and show that because we know you truly have to choose to come to the private school, right? So we actually have to work harder yeah. to get students. You know, when you have your zone public school, even the customers don't have. Yeah, right. So we have to show that. And so we, it, we're not hiding this information and we have to show good results and that we're working really hard for the kids to get them in because parents don't have to come to our schools. Um, and so, mm-hmm. you know, the, even with the ESA and all those things, the majority of students are still going to go to traditional public schools. This is not an attack on public education. If anything, this is going to make it better. I had a great conversation. Actually, he's a former public school superintendent former public school teacher, um, and he spent all his his education career, I think he was saying, he was totally against charter schools, totally against the idea of education choice, but he contacted me so that he could talk about how can he open a charter school and how can he consider Ah. that? Because I think he's seen the light and recognizing it's not, you know, that... We're not against the public education, but once you're in it and you see some of the challenges, there's ways that you can educate kids differently in these different environments. And he just has a, a deeper passion. He wants to help young boys more than what he felt like was getting help in the public school. And this was after being in there for over 40 years, you know, so it's, it's just interesting to me. So I, I think when people really sit back and pay attention to what's happening, it's not a us versus them. It's not about trying to demolish the public education system. Although I am really strong when I say we do have to shake things up and really change things. And I'm not totally against like a, a, a breakdown of a system and recreating things. I don't know that we can continue to try to reform certain things. Some stuff we just need to stop doing and start yes, from scratch right, with certain things. Right, so, right. you know, I, I do, I am calling for drastic measures um, because we've been doing so much of the wrong things for so long. So Yes. Yes. Yeah. Well, dollars, it's, it's the most trite phrase in education uh, amongst conservatives. And that is the dollars should follow the child. That's actually still a pretty good phrase. If the dollars are following the child, the parent can just pick, what they what they think is if they're smart enough, if the parents are smart yeah. enough. <laughs> yeah. And I, I'm so confident. I'm, I'm still you can tell I haven't recovered from that. I'm still struggling. Yeah. Oh, I haven't. Every time I speak to a parent group, I need to say that. <laughs> um before we before we break, I wanted you to tell us a little bit. Of course, you were with my SC education and you were the driving force behind uh, all those buses and all those folks. Uh, coming to Columbia for National School Choice Week. I remember one that was, uh, we had, we the, the weatherman was predicting rain, so we had it in the township auditorium, which turned out to be a fantastic one because that uh, all that sound for those bands, those, those school bands, was it was all in that small space, and that was a great one. A number of them on the Statehouse steps and a lot of wonderful National School, school Choice Weeks that you organized. 
But now you are even more so a part of National School Choice Week, as in the National School Choice Week organization. So tell us a little bit about National School Choice Week, the organization. Okay, so now, actually, we are National School Choice Awareness Foundation. So that's one of the big changes, to be able oh, to, to make excellent. that right. Yes. So it's been, not, I don't want to say rebranded, but I guess the organization has been renamed because, as you can tell, and as you said, people were getting confused about hearing National School Choice Week, the week, versus National School Choice Week, the organization. And so now we are National School Choice Awareness Foundation. Um, and we underneath that umbrella, then we have three programs, the National School Choice Week, which this year it'll be January 21st through the 27th. Um, and we will be back in Columbia for our big rally. And we brought in a new partner. Charleston Rise is going to be working with us to do that as we're working through. And the MyC Education brand is still going to exist. So we're excited about that. Uh, we also have been the School Choice Week Navigator, which is on the website and it's resources. So National School Choice Week, national organization, we have information for all of the states. And so you can go in and click on that School Choice Week Navigator on your specific state um, and find information about that. So there's a place in South Carolina and all our stuff pops up, the MISC Education, Palmetto Promise, and different resources. And we'll continue to add onto the website those. And then we also have, I, I, I can only say the first part, Kenose, because it's there's more to it, but it's our uh, Spanish-speaking leg. It's more than just translated information. It's really looking at issues that are very specific to the Hispanic um, community and different challenges that they might be dealing with that are a little slightly different um, than other families, particularly when we're talking about dealing with uh, matters of documentation and things like that. And so that's another piece that Spanish-speaking families can go in and find specific information that's tailored toward them. And so I've been brought on as the director of awareness events. And so I'm helping to manage state states and get those events going, just like we did in South Carolina to have our big school fairs, our big rallies. And really, it's about just raising awareness about different education options. That's really all we want to do. We celebrate all of them, public schools, charter schools, private schools, homeschooling, micro schools. It's just about making sure parents have all the information that they need so that they can can make effective decisions for their children because we know parents are smart enough to make those decisions, yes. and if, right? And if they have all the resources at their fingertips, then they can make informed decisions. So it's been great. Um, it is interesting. I don't feel like I've changed jobs because, you know, with through MyC Education and Palmetto Promise, we've been partnering with National School Choice Week. And now it's just kind of been a natural kind of progression. And I just have more responsibilities with it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Great. I think somewhere, if I can point over my shoulder here, I think there's a National School Choice Week scarf. I don't know if I should report this to you as an official of National School Choice Week. That's all right. We still have a lot of scarves around here, which yeah. uh, we will make sure to distribute at, at the next yeah. National School Choice Week, um, yeah. which uh, was, again, a great one last year. Again, I think we had sort of a rain, a rain date there. So we were inside the uh, USC Alumni uh, Center, I think. And that was a fantastic event. And it's just something about the energy of having all those kids in, in one room. And uh, just for, for if you if you don't if you're not around children, around students on a regular basis, there's just something about it that just really is, is energizing. 
it's one of my favorite times and it's an opportunity to remind ourselves these are the people that we're doing it for it's about the children it's about the teachers yeah. and the parents of families and when they come together and we're just there celebrating it's like how can people argue that we shouldn't have all these different options and i love highlighting this the student speakers and we had some young people speak this past year who it's just they're awesome we had one young lady from one of the virtual charter schools speak um one young lady from a brick and mortar charter um um, and so from private schools and just really just kind of sharing their experiences and how they're thriving. And so we have to do things in our state to make sure that more children can access that. Because to me, it always goes back to that is who has access to the great opportunities and why should we eliminate those opportunities from certain families just because they live in a certain neighborhood or they don't make certain amount of money. I mean, it's like we could be depriving the next president or senator from coming up through the ranks all because they were forced to go somewhere that just didn't really nurture their academic needs or their Wasn't social and emotional. Yeah. yeah. And we have to we have to move past that. So yeah. Yeah. I'm looking forward to it this year. We'll be back at the Alumni Center this year. Oh, good. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Well, mark your calendars, January 21st through 27th for National School Choice Week. You know, I, I think if 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 really we were in a in a fight to somehow shut down the public schools, uh, this this ESA bill is not truly the camel's nose under the tent uh, just because of the dollars. Because uh, 5,000 accounts funded at $6,000 each, $30 million or so. If you look at the uh, South Carolina Office of Revenue and Fiscal Affairs that keeps track of all the data for all the data, if you look at South Carolina school finances, you'll see South Carolina, when you total up all the districts into one number, federal, state, and local, it's roughly, as I recall, about 11 billion. So 11,000 11, million, because a, a billion is a thousand million. So 11,000 million versus 30 million. So 11,000 million versus 30 million, we're not talking about something that's going to just, just destroy public education. We'll still have all the options. We just need parents, no matter what their zip code and their income level and the, the needs of their child to be able to match their child's needs to the best possible um, choice for that, that child. That just seems like what America is all about. So it's just, yeah. it just seems very, very bottom line and just all about freedom for, mm -hmm. for me. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. We have to, I mean, it, it's just, it's about the kids. <laughs> yes. Well, Dr. Seanette Parker, um, always great to talk to you. And again, um, I hope that someday there will be the Dr. Seanette Parker uh, podcast uh, because I have I have just thought that that would just be a natural for you. And it's certainly been great to have you on, on here on, with us today. I think it's been very informative. And uh, for anything we, we may, might have missed when it comes to school choice, there is the National School Choice Week website, and there is the Palmetto Promise website, and they have lots of resources. And if you don't see something on there you'd like to see on either one of those sites, then you can email uh, Seanette uh, or National School Choice Week, or you can email us, and we will we will provide whatever you need. So yeah. thank you for your time with us today. It has been fantastic. Hi, this is Wendy Damron, President and CEO of Palmetto Promise Institute. Thanks for tuning in to our Beyond Policy podcast. 
Visit palmettopromise.org for more information and to support our mission.